scriptures this evening, I've been asked if I will speak to you on um, prayer warfare. And I believe that Johannes is going to take this a step further when he will uh, minister to you. Um, I'd like you to turn first of all to a very well-known passage in Ephesians and chapter 6. Ephesians and chapter 6 from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore take up the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and on my behalf, that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then in the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. 2 Corinthians and chapter 10 from verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And then if you will turn to the Old Testament, to Daniel, the book of Daniel and chapter 9. And we will read a few verses from uh, two uh, chapters, two or three chapters here, um, that are all to do with one particular period in the life of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 from verse 1 In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet for the accomplishing of the desolations of Jerusalem even seventy years. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes 
And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made confession, and said. And then in the same chapter, um, uh, verse 20, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yet while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he instructed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment went forth, and I am come to tell thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore consider the, the matter and understand the vision. Chapter 10, uh, and um, from verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, thou man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand and to humble thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. And the last part of this same uh, chapter, from verse 20, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I go forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. But I will tell thee that which is inscribed in the writing of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me against these, but Michael, your prince. Um, I don't think there is any subject that is of greater and more strategic importance for the church in the days in which we live than the matter of prayer warfare. It is one of the tragedies that has befallen the work of God worldwide that there are so few people who know anything about prayer warfare. Uh, if it is understood to a certain extent on the individual level, you have to travel a long, long way to find a company of God's children who understand something about corporate prayer war. And yet, this is the strategic calling of the church for our time here on earth. Now, um, I am very conscious uh, this evening that uh, we haven't a lot of time to expand or to uh, uh, go in depth into this matter. And I really want to leave you with certain seed thoughts that I trust the Holy Spirit will bring to germination in your heart. Most 
prayer meetings in the fellowships or assemblies uh, through the world are, I hope you understand what I'm going to say, more a religious exercise than God-given prayer. There's a kind of idea amongst the people of God that we ought to pray. It is our duty to pray. And therefore we must come together. If there is a prayer meeting, even when we absent ourselves from it three times out of four, we have a bit of a conscience. It's a kind of sense that really it is our duty to be there in prayer. But very few believers understand the call to prayer. After all, why don't we just pray individually? What is the real value of corporate prayer? If God hears prayer, and all prayer really is, is petition, request, why in the world don't we stay at home and pray? And why don't we get a brother on Sunday in our bigger meeting together to um, announce to us certain matters that need to be prayed for? certain needs, certain problems amongst us, certain areas which, which need uh, uh, divine illumination, then we can all through the week pray in our quiet times or uh, at home uh, our prayers. Why do we, why are we called together to pray? Uh, what is the, uh, the nature of uh, corporate prayer. I don't think anyone will ever understand uh, prayer warfare if they do not understand one simple but profound basic fact. That simple, profound and basic fact is this. The world we live in is essentially and substantially a spiritual world. Let me say it again. It's so simple, so kindergarten, that really uh, it hardly needs to be said, and yet it has to be said, because it is for lack of understanding of this simple uh, fact that we don't understand what prayer is all about. This world you and I are living, this seemingly physical world, this world of time, this transient world, this world of, of, in which we uh, can feel things, hear things, touch things, see things, taste things, this actual world is essentially and substantially a spiritual world. Now this is exactly what many believers don't grasp. They believe that this is a physical world. And one day we're going to go to a spiritual world. Evidently one day, um, according to the prevalent idea amongst Christians, we are going to be pickled in ether for the rest of eternity. Sort of in some kind of spiritual condition, bodiless and to a certain extent soulless. We are going to be sort of spirits floating forever in ether. Uh, the idea is that this world we are now in is substantially and essentially only a, uh, a physical world. Now it is perfectly true the Bible says first the natural and then the spiritual. 
It is perfectly true that we are in a world that has been created. But, from the very beginning, there have been things visible and things invisible about this actual world. There have been thrones, dominions, there have been principalities, powers, world rulers of darkness, hosts of uh, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Uh, these are not flesh, this is not flesh and blood. Not one of this, of this uh, hierarchy of evil has a body. <laughs> uh, they are all spiritual beings. You can't see them with these eyes. You can't actually touch them with these hands. You can't, uh, uh, through senses, grasp them. And yet, according to the Apostle Paul, they are the reality that the church confronts. Well, some people might say, well, of course, now, now you, you mean in the New Testament. In the Old Testament it was all physical, wasn't it? No, not at all. Not at all. It never has been. The one who hardened Pharaoh was God. So the real secret history Behind the whole exodus of God's people from, uh, from uh, uh, Egypt was, in fact, to do with a spiritual world. For instance, did anyone actually see the angel of death that passed through the land of Egypt? And touched the firstborn all the way through the land? Yet that was the final stroke, the last straw, that brought about uh, the exodus. And we could go on and say one thing after another. But what I want to just explain to you very simply is this. We are living in a substantially spiritual, essentially and substantially a spiritual world. Now, if you and I are living in a substantially and essentially spiritual world, we need spiritual weapons if we are going to know the establishment of the kingdom of God. If the church is going to be built up. If the living stones are going to be obtained, quarried out of the everlasting rock, then you and I, as the church of God, have got to understand that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're, they don't belong to the things of time and sense. They are spiritual weapons. And they are only mighty before God. Now, in the Greek, this is an interesting little phrase in, in 2 Corinthians 10, because you will see in your different versions, there are a number of translations, because our translators have, in different ways, tried to get over the truth. Actually, literally it is, for the weapons of our warfare are mighty before or in the presence of God, to the casting down of strongholds. In other words, these weapons of ours, which are spiritual, are only effective and only operative in the presence of God. In exactly the same way that the Apostle says in another place, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not only meaning that the whole Bible is authorized by the Holy Spirit. Not just simply and only meaning that the Holy Spirit is the source of the, of the uh, inspiration uh, of the Word of God, that it is infallible and inspired. But it means more than that. It means that uh, um, the Holy Spirit 
has to take the word and apply it to a given situation. And you can't just take any scripture willy-nilly and just somehow uh, push it, as it were, into uh, fulfillment in a situation. The Holy Spirit has to take the word which he has himself inspired and has to almost re-inspire it to us so that it lives in a given situation. And that word becomes the sword of the Holy Spirit in the hands of the people of God for getting the purpose of God and the will of God done in any given locality or any given situation. If you go back into the Old Testament, here you find this man Daniel. People sometimes say to me that uh, they are too, too busy for prayer. Uh, I won't say in this particular company, but in many companies of God's children I go to, um, the most responsible leaders are never in the prayer meeting. They are all too busy. They are businessmen, or they're professional men, and they're all too busy for the prayer meeting. And you know you can go to some more traditional institutional churches where you will be... Uh, I, I never, shouldn't use the word lucky, but you know what I mean. You're lucky if you find two out of ten uh, deacons or elders in the prayer meeting. The excuse given is everybody's too busy, and including the pastor. Normally the pastor says, I'm too busy for the prayer time. For far too much. I leave it to the people of God. What he actually means is he's leaving it to some of the old ladies. They evidently have the time, all the time on their hands, and they can pray. It is in, in the most incredible attitude. I once uh, in this country had to address a whole uh, a conference of ministers of a certain denomination. And I won't mention it, I probably have told you this story before. They asked me to talk about prayer warfare. When I'd finished, they had a discussion about it. It was one of the most revealing discussions I've ever seen. This was a fundamentalist denomination. One after another, they discussed this whole matter of prayer warfare and their conclusions were summed up by one of the leading divines amongst them. A very, very powerful congregation in Florida. He stood up and he said, I think it's a good thing in the routine of the church to have a prayer meeting. It's good for our congregations to be allowed to let off steam. That was evidently the Alpha and Omega of the prayer life of the church. Let them come into a prayer meeting and let them let off steam and then we'll find them easier to manipulate. Easier to lead. If they've got things off their chest. I mean, the idea is God doesn't hear. I mean, prayer's just some kind of hot wind into the air. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, let them get it off their chest in a psychological manner, psychiatric way, and they'll feel better for it. I mean, and then we'll all be happier. Where, do you, where are you going to get with such a, such a spirit? Now, it is interesting when we go back, we find this man called Daniel. Now, Daniel was not uh, just, as he was in the beginning of his life, um, a eunuch in the civil service, of one of the most powerful empires the world has ever known. He rose from that position to become one of the committee of three, the executive committee of three, and then finally rose to become the president under the emperor of the whole empire. Now there was no man more busy, more with greater legitimate excuse 
for not playing than Daniel. Can you imagine? This wasn't in the days when you had thousands of computers and all kinds of little clerks running around doing the work. These were the autocratic days. These were the days of absolute monarchy. These were the days when the word of the emperor of the king was a matter of life or death. It was absolute. And actually the emperor although in the end he had to say this or that, and it was absolute law. It was Daniel who had to do all the work. And I imagine the amount of material on the man's desk. I can think, don't forget, the empire stretched from India to Europe, and from Ethiopia to Russia. And this one child of God raised by God to the highest position of authority and power in a heathen empire, this man had to actually sort out all the pros and cons of every decision the emperor was going to make. In fact, we believe that he finally became the man who worded a number of the decrees. He actually wrote the wording. I can imagine him, I'm not being funny, I can imagine Paul Daniel sweating it out hour after hour through the night. After all, one wrong word, he might have lost his head. Now, if there was one person who could have said, I'm not the person to pray, I think there must be others that should pray. I, I'm too busy. And, and God has raised me to this position, there's no doubt about that. And furthermore, uh, I'm in the place where God can use me to answer the prayers of his children. Now, I, I won't pray, let them pray. But not Daniel. Daniel was the man to whom God revealed that there were 70 years spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet that were about to be accomplished. And then came the burden into the, into the ministry of Daniel. How in that busy life he accomplished this ministry of prayer, uh, we'll never know. It made him ill at times. It says so. He was busy and ill for a number of days, so all the desk work had to wait. But he considered this matter a matter of priority. Now, when he began to pray into being something which God had already predicted would in fact come to pass. Now, note that, please, very carefully. When he began to pray into being something which God had already predicted would come to pass, the whole of the unseen world went into foment. It was as if this one man in his prayer ministry set in motion a whole spiritual world that nobody could see. Not even Daniel. It was only when the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Daniel, I've got here at last. You're so loved in heaven, Daniel. From the moment you began to pray, your, you had the answer to your petitions, but when I was sent to speak with you on my way, I came into a scrap between the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Now, oh, it sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? These princes of Persia and these, this prince of Greece were not actual physical princes of flesh and blood. These were invisible principalities which makes us realize that every superpower has somewhere a principality. And every ideology has somewhere a world ruler of darkness. 
every new political movement, whatever it is, has behind it some spiritual power. And so we suddenly discover that before the Babylonian Empire, which had lasted for a thousand years, think of that, a thousand years was going to disappear overnight and the Persian Empire was going to take its place, an altogether different concept of government. Before these two things could happen, something had to happen in the unseen between the principalities. And when the, the Greek era was to take over from the Persian era, again, something had to happen in the unseen. Now, it was Daniel's prayer that somehow or other set in motion these whole things. And God's purpose for his chosen people was all summed up in Michael, the archangel Michael, who was a specially appointed and delegated by God to watch over the interests of Israel. Now, in this whole enormous fight, which we only had the slightest indication of, it's like a little window that suddenly, it's not as if God draws aside the whole thing and says, now, here it all is in detail. All we get is a little picture because of Daniel's prayer ministry. Suddenly the curtain's drawn aside and we see tremendous movements in the unseen. Principalities coming, principalities going. Fights between different principalities for sovereignty and for authority. It is amazing. And you might say to me, well, uh, what does it all mean? Well, I can't really honestly tell you. Nor do I think we are meant really to know. This is the only thing I know, that the church, as Daniel did in the old dispensation, in the new dispensation, the church occupies the same place that Daniel occupied, in the heavenlies, in union with God in Christ. And the church is meant to see that the kingdom of God comes in any given situation and that the will of God is done as it is in heaven, so on earth in any given situation. In other words, there's, there's no such thing as some kind of Islamic fatalism. The Lord is in charge of everything and at such and such a point in his sovereignty, this will happen, and at such and such a point in his sovereignty, that will happen. It doesn't matter what we do. We can just coast along and, and so God calls for the working together with him of his church. Now, I, I don't know whether this means anything to you. Bring it right down to your situation here in Richmond. I mean, you may not uh, be able to do at present much about the principality of Marxism or the principality or the world ruler behind Islam or the, or the, the great principality behind uh, secular or materialistic humanism. But here you are as a company of God's people in this city of Richmond in Virginia. Do you... Do you mean to tell me that the essential, substantial thing about this uh, company of God's children is that we're all physical human beings and that we have physical hu uh, circumstances and that all we need to do is meet together in a physical way, read the Bible, 
make a few requests, sing a few hymns, have the Lord's table, and it automatically everything happens. Why in the world does the Apostle Paul, at the end of, his, the, of the letter, which is generally accepted uh, as being the high tide mark, the high water mark of divine revelation concerning the purpose of God, why does he end with these words? Why doesn't he say, finally, be strong in the Lord, go out and evangelize? Why doesn't he say, finally, be strong in the Lord and have good, deep Bible studies? Or why doesn't he say, finally, be strong in the Lord and have real, genuine and spiritual fellowship? Instead, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take to you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits or the cunning devices of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rules of the darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Wherefore, take you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand, uh, uh, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. When you've got the whole armor on, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, with all supplication and prayer. And for me as well, he says. Now, what did he mean? He meant simply this. Don't you think for a single moment that you, as a fellowship of God's people, can just coast along and everything will be all right. You can go from conference to conference, or from meeting to meeting, and everything will just quietly coast along and it will be all right. You will discover that you have within the unseen colossal enemies. And those enemies will work to divide, or to bring faction, or to bring error, or to bring superficiality, or to just inhibit, or bind, or bring heaviness, just simply to frustrate the purpose of God for Richmond, Virginia. Unless we know how to stand against the wiles of the devil, which, which are um, adjusted and planned for each particular company of God's children. They're not just general. Unless you and I know how to stand against the wiles of the devil, how to withstand in the evil day. So evidently the church at Ephesus was going to know an evil day. All of us who've had anything to do with the work of God know what these evil days are. So there is a time of blessing, there is a time of multiplication, there is a time of deepening of spiritual life, and then comes the evil day. And for a while it seems as if we're given over to the enemy, as if he simply can do every kind of thing. Things become hard, fellowship becomes strained. We start and we all begin to turn inside and argue with one another, and everything is wrong. We go into witch hunts and I don't know what, it's the evil day. We, we, we don't recognize that there are principalities and powers and world rules and dozens and hosts of wickedness spirits in heavenly places. So we're flung to one another and naturally we look for flesh and blood. Flesh and blood's the problem. It's the leadership that's wrong or it's brother so-and-so that's wrong or sister so-and-so wrong or the place we meet in is wrong or this is wrong or the time of our meeting is wrong or the way we handle the children is wrong or the young people, the way we handle the young, something's always wrong. 
It's only when you travel all around the world that you find that the same thing happens everywhere. Where there's a marvellous youth work, you find the same problems coming up. Where there's a marvellous children's work, the same problems are coming up. As if the enemy is working one way or another just to destroy, destroy. Dear brothers and sisters, this matter is quite strategic. In other words, if you and I as the people of God don't begin to learn that this divine strategy is to equip us and empower us to see that the will of God is done in our area, and that the kingdom of God comes in power amongst us, and that the will of God is done as in heaven so amongst us, it won't just happen. Indeed, what we have will be taken away. Nor is this to bring a great heaviness upon us all, a kind of um, atmosphere of war all the time. No joy, no peace, no relaxation, no sort of going out into the pastures to have a little sort of run around in the sun amongst the flowers. The idea is we're in battle, 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 morning, noon and night. Um, and we get this kind of heavy uh, thing. People say, oh goodness, we're not going to have that, are we? We're going to start on all this kind of thing. We've got enough pressures already. But it is an amazing thing that when the people of God learn to stand in Christ, and learn to stand against the wiles of the devil, and learn to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, what is the result? Joy. What is the result? Freedom. What is the result? Liberty. What is the result? Fullness. What is the result? Multiplication. What is the result? The purpose of God established. What is the result? The kingdom of God comes in power. That is the result. Far from being all pressurized and heavy by war, 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 and more war, we find that by simply standing together in Christ as the armor of God, we come into joy and fullness. All the times one comes into a meeting which is heavy because the enemy is sitting on it. And we all rise up together because some one of our responsible brothers or leaders says to us, there's something sitting on this meeting. Let's together reject it in the name of the Lord. And we begin to praise God. It's gone and it's gone for good. It does not return again in that meeting. It's out. And the heavens open above us. Why do the heavens open above us? Because they are open above us, that's why. Every time the enemy closes the heavens above us, he is producing a lie. Because in Christ we have an open heaven. When we resist those wiles of the devil, we discover that what God says becomes fact for us all. The fact is established amongst us. It is interesting to me that so often this uh, last portion of the Ephesian letter is taken personally. As if the Lord is saying, now finally, you love. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You take the whole armour of God personally and you stand against the wild. There's nothing wrong in taking it personally, but it is not in the uh, first person. 
It is you all in the plural. You in the plural. In other words, this church at Ephesus, which, to which has been entrusted this tremendous revelation concerning the purpose of God and concerning the nature of the church, this is not going to just come into being willy-nilly because they've heard it with the ears. They have got to stand together. Now, dear brothers and sisters, when you begin to see this, I think it brings us to a new place. Sometimes people say to me that we uh, shouldn't pray for uh, our national government, we shouldn't pray for things within the nation or whatever else, because um, uh, we are the church and our real concerns are more for um, uh, spiritual things and kingdom matters. But, brothers and sisters, we cannot be more spiritual than the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that we should pray, first of all, for kings and for those in authority. And then it tells us the other things we should pray for. And then, it, and this is Paul in his last letters. Not at the beginning, when he was just young in spiritual experience, but at the end, he says to us, this is what you should pray for. And why should we pray it? That the gospel may be preached, and that all men may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it is incumbent upon us as the people of God to be the salt in the society in which we're found, halting the corruption, maintaining law and order for as long as the Lord would grant it to us. We will not let the enemy come in with lawlessness and disorder one day, one hour, before that which restrains is taken away. We are going to stand as the church of God for good government, for law and order in our nation, for the absolute freedom to preach the gospel and to worship the Lord as we do. We are going to stand together for the calling out of a people for the name of the Lord Jesus. We are going to stand together for the building up of the body of the Lord Jesus. We are going to stand together for the purpose of God, for the nations to be fulfilled. We are going to stand together for the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom in every nation as a testimony. We are going to stand together for the salvation of the house of Israel. That really is our call in prayer. Now, Thank God he never pitches us into more than we can take. And this is one of the problems when one speaks about this kind of matter. People immediately decide, now we must take on the power of Marxism. We must take on the Islamic revolution led by Khomeini. We must bind him, we must do this. It, it, what we do then is uncover ourselves, because we have not, we have not reached that point where we are able to, we are mature enough yet together to take on such a but there are things locally things in our, our uh, local circumstances things in our fellowship together these are the things which we can begin with now I, I must watch the time, I don't know when I began speaking when do we start praying? 
Um, can you tell me, please? Because I, I, in 20, 30 minutes time, four things. Ah, well, never tell a preacher. I'll give him another 30 minutes, my work. Um, anyway, to come to this thing, let me just come down to one or two practical things. How do we pray together? I don't think this, the principle of corporate prayer can ever be underlined enough. The principle of corporate prayer is togetherness. So simple. That is the principle of corporate prayer, togetherness. There's no difference between private, personal prayer and corporate prayer. The difference is that when we're in corporate prayer, we are together. Now, the very fact that we are together changes, as it were, the context. For instance, if I adopt simply the, the same stance and the same routine as if there was nobody else in the room, which is what normally happens in most prayer meetings, of course, we bring a heaviness into the whole time. So I begin and I say, I want to pray, Father, for um, such and such a problem, and I want to pray that you will do this, and you will do that, and you will do the other. And Lord, there is a family in Los Angeles I want to pray for. And Lord, will you please bless this family, and will you save the boy in the family who's so wayward, and will you do this, and will you do that? And then, Lord, there's that missionary that I, I know about in Indonesia. I really want to pray for that, that, that missionary, Lord. And and then there are the dear saints behind the Iron Curtain, Lord. Do remember all of those. And then there's Mrs. So-and-so who's so ill tonight. Could you please heal her? Now, this, I would normally perhaps pray, uh, at least uh, in principle, like this, on my own. But here I am together with all of you. Did you get one indication that we were together in that prayer? I don't think you will have got a single indication that there's anybody else in this room but the Lord and myself. And this is what we all do to one another. In our corporate time of prayer, we shut everybody else out. It's I and you, you and me. Now, if that's the case, why don't we send everybody off home to pray so that we could cut down the wastage of time by an enormous amount? In other words, you may begin praying for such and such a matter, and then there may come a point where the, the Holy Spirit moves in another direction, and we move off onto another matter together, and there we remain for a while. And then he may move from there to another matter. Not every matter is settled in one prayer meeting. There are some matters which the Holy Spirit will raise, in which we will uh, uh, pray for a thing, and the Holy Spirit will now say, now leave this for now, we'll come back to it. And we go on to something else. There are other matters where we know we've got the victory in that prayer meeting. Glorious. We absolutely know the Lord heard us in this matter. He's done it. We have no evidence that he's done it, except in our hearts. We know he's heard us, it's done. And surely we find out it is done. And this then becomes, for even the youngest believer in the prayer meeting, a wonderful sort of uh, nutritious meal to help them grow in the Lord. Because in the prayer meeting, you actually see what in the Bible study you only hear. You suddenly discover that God is at work and that, uh, that he does answer prayer. 
It is, of course, all summed up in the words that you've probably heard me say before in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 18 and 19, or 19 and 20. Um, Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them and my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This agreement is not that you, you and I agree to agree before we go to prayer, and therefore we can twist the arm of God into doing things he doesn't really want to do. It is that the Holy Spirit agrees us, if I may so wrongly murder the English language. The Holy Spirit agrees us. Uh, he, he, he harmonizes us as we are at prayer. How? Because the risen Lord Jesus is in our midst by the Holy Spirit, and as we pray we have an identity of burden. Sometimes it is identity of burden, but a complementing of the burden. One person prays one thing, another person follows and adds another note. And another person follows, adding yet another note. And then someone else comes in with yet another note. And before long we begin to see something of the purpose of God for this matter that we're praying about. It's an agreement. It is the most exciting thing in prayer when we're really in prayer warfare and you've got something kindled in your heart and you're waiting for an opportunity to jump in with it. And when, when you're just about to open your mouth, somebody else opens their mouth and says exactly what you were about to say. It is then quite amazing. Now some people say, well of course, you only have to pray for one thing once, you know. I, I, I don't understand this at all. They say, just pray for one thing once, it's done. I was once in a meeting in Stockholm, many years ago, where these brothers took Stockholm for the Lord, and then they forbade any further prayer. They said, we have now taken Stockholm, Stockholm is taken. But Stockholm went on exactly the same as it had always gone on. I mean, it had no effect at all upon Stockholm. It was a presumption, not a spiritual direction. You see, the Apostle Paul said, praying at all seasons in the Spirit. Now, when he said in the Spirit, he meant in the dimension of the Spirit, under the direction of the Spirit, by the inspiration of the Spirit, um, in the empowering of the Spirit, with the equipment of the Spirit. It has a tremendously broad meaning to pray in the Spirit. And what it means is this, every real prayer meeting should be in the Spirit. That is, there should be an anointing on that time, and everyone who comes in has to be sensitive to that anointing and has to learn how to sense the Lord's direction and his way through a time of prayer. Now someone will say, well now what happens when we get uh, someone who prays out of uh, line? There are a number of normal reactions to this. One reaction is the reaction of certain leaders who would like to kill the person. <laughs> I mean, the feeling is, strangle the person. Why do they have to come in with this kind of thing? They should have been more in line with the Spirit. This is something, I suppose, I find an echo in all of our hearts. When we're really in a spiritual war, and we feel every bullet 
is important. Someone who comes in with the wrong direction and fires ammunition in the wrong direction is a real nuisance. Then, of course, there was another reaction. We're off the way. We're off. We're out of the, the path. So the immediate reaction is flesh got us out of the path, flesh will get us back into the path. So immediately, without any to do, we say, as we were praying, Lord. And a pall of death comes down upon the whole meeting. We have actually got us back on the right track, but we've done it with the flesh, and death is the result. You know, priests must never touch anything dead. As soon as they touch death, defilement comes in. And spiritually in prayer, it is absolutely true. Every time we touch a corpse, something we shouldn't be touching, and when we gut the flesh, death. Now, I must tell you something. When you've got a young believer in your midst who's just found the Lord, and they've never prayed before, and they open their dear mouths and pray the wrong thing at great length, the Lord loves it. Uh, the Lord, far from saying, throw him out, crush him, discipline him, have a heavy word with him. The Lord says, wasn't that lovely? It's the burblings of a baby. And the Lord is, there's no sense of death in the meeting at all. We, we can move straight on because that little one will learn in time how to pray. Of course, our problem is sometimes with those who ought to know how to pray and who take us well and truly off the track. So sometimes our reaction is, let us get back. And it's a fleshly reaction. When we have been taken away from the direction of the Spirit, the way to get back is by, to everyone who's responsible, look to God. Look, Lord, get us back. Get us right back. And maybe the Lord will prompt one of you to pray or someone else and we're back. A good prayer time is not one that, go, that never goes off the rails. A good prayer time is well, as a prayer meeting that sometimes does go off the rails, gets out of the Lord's direction, but comes back into the Lord's direction. Now that is overcoming. And there is a peculiar value to the Lord when a prayer time is somehow brought right back into the line of God. And so we end absolutely on course. So dear uh, children of God, we have to learn these things. Uh, there's always a danger in speaking about prayer at a prayer time. Because everyone starts to shrivel up. You know, we all by nature get very self-conscious and embarrassed. Now we sort of say, now how can we open our mouths and pray now? I mean, uh, if we'd been left to ourselves, we could have all prayed, but now it's going to be very difficult for us after hearing something like this. But the fact of the matter is that we have to just be very honest, and we have to learn. Prayer warfare is a, stra a strategic necessity for the church. Now, I must close, but let me just close on this note. Has it, ever occur, has it ever occurred to you to wonder 
what is the church for? You know, you know, one of the dangers of seeing what the church is, you can stop with the church. Many people do. They say, oh, I've seen what the church is, I've seen what the oh, it, it is wonderful, wonderful, I've seen what the church is. They stop at the bride and don't go on to the city. In other words, they never recognize what the Lord's calling for the churches. Even the churches are means to an end in one sense, if you know what I mean. Because the first word the Lord ever said to human beings was, have dominion. His first word wasn't, be together. His first word was, not, now I'm looking for a bride. His first word was, have dominion. And that is the calling of the church, to have dominion. And how do we have dominion? The, the most uh, powerful way this having dominion is in fact uh, expressed is in corporate prayer. Where we declare together the headship of the Lord Jesus and the Lordship of Jesus. Where we declare together in worship and praise what are spiritual and eternal facts. This dominion is expressed when there are assaults upon us. When there's heaviness amongst us. When there's a, a kind of sluggishness about everything. Brothers and sisters, when we learn this lesson, we can be honest. I go in many, many groups and I find that one of the problems is that people won't face up to the real problems amongst them. In other words, you know, we all know there's a heaviness amongst us, but nobody says it. Because we're, we're not meant to have heaviness. So nobody says isn't it heavy? You know, it's, it's rather like uh, the Hans Christian Andersen story of the little boy, you know, when the, they told the king that he had this wonderful garment. It wasn't anything, of course, but they told him that only the wise could see it. So the king said, oh, it's beautiful. And everybody else said, oh, isn't it wonderful? And when the king went out absolutely naked, uh, a little boy said, oh, look, the king is naked. And everybody suddenly realized the king was naked. <laughs> and you know, it's a strange thing amongst us who are the Lord's people. We won't face up to realities. We won't say, there's heaviness amongst us. It's as if we, we feel we're letting the side down say there's heaviness. Or, or there's sluggishness amongst us. Uh, we're, we're, we're not functioning as we are. We, 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 we don't say it as if, if we admit it, the whole thing will collapse. Whereas, once you learn the strategic necessity of prayer warfare, you know you're in a battle. There are times when the enemy will inject a sluggishness into the body, when he will bring a heaviness upon the body, when he will breathe in um, lying accusations. These are things that have got to be faced together in prayer and thrown out in the name of the Lord until we together obtain the victory and resist the devil and he flees from us. Then we suddenly find that we're more free than we've ever been before. And we're, we're functioning more than we've ever functioned before. We're in a battle, brothers and sisters. Sometimes I think that our prayer meetings are not a wrestling match. 
It is interesting that the Apostle used the word wrestling. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against world rulers. You know, as I've often said, and probably many of you have heard me say it before, that most prayer meetings I go into, you would think it was a badminton match. Shuttlecock, ping-pong, little bit of energy in it, but very polite. But uh, wrestling brings you into very close contact with the adversary. It's not a polite thing at all. And there are times when the adversary may sit on top of you or twist your arm up your back. Many a time in the fellowship of God's people we've had our arm pinned up our back or our leg nearly pulled off or a huge heavy weight sitting on top of us. But when we learn how to stand against the wiles of the devil, and how to withstand in the evil day, we get the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get the victory, the power of the enemy is broken in a depth and in a way that means we come into joy and into freedom and into life and into fullness. Now may the Lord just sow these seeds in your heart. Uh, God will help you. He and his take this matter perhaps a step further um, in the practical, but I just want you to know that we are in an essentially and substantially spiritual world. If we are going to see the purpose of God fulfilled, then we who are saved, who by God's positioning are in Christ, in heavenly places, the only people in the world who are both on the earth and in the heavenlies at the same time, we have a unique position and a unique calling from our position in Christ and with Christ to see that the purpose of God is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is established. This is our calling. If this little seed thought, this, uh, this seed, as it were, falls into your heart by the Holy Spirit and takes root and germinates, it will bring a whole new concept to prayer and a whole new concept to finding the will of God and doing then we shall begin to discover that even when we need to know what we should do on this and what we should do on that, it's basically the same principle of knowing the Lord's will together and discerning it and taking action. Thank you.